Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Check one, two, 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 two. Can you hear me? Keith, reading you, reading you loud and clear. Okay. How you doing? Um, I'm good. I, I'm a, I'm a little bit, uh, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing some technical difficulties. Okay. And we- that, that's because I had my second Pfizer shot and I was sick for a day and a half. I was told, uh, I had a couple of friends that said, you're going to need to give yourself a couple of days just to get through whatever you need to get through. And I got through it, but I'm still suffering from some of the side effects. Right. And um, I'm a diabetic and I had a circle jerks rehearsal last week. And during the rehearsal, I suffered hypoglycemia. That's because I'm a diabetic. And that's when you don't have enough carbs and glucose going on in your system. And I, I had to like bow out of the rehearsal. And I went and got something to eat. And I was sitting outdoors. And it was a little bit nippy out. I'm, I'm wearing a sweatshirt and a T-shirt, of course. 
Uh, it's a it's a it's a little bit chilly out, and I'm sitting outdoors. But I need to eat because I'm I'm I've I've hit a bottom. I'm at 44 uh, on my glucose level. I'm at 44, which is um, normally you run between 70 and 120. And when you start dipping down below 70, that's when you're approaching hypoglycemia. And so I was at 44. Obviously, the, the, the reason I have no energy to make it through the rehearsal, I ate breakfast too early. It was a, it was a, it was a, a very uh, valuable learning experience for me because I had eaten breakfast at, I want to say about 10, 10.30 in the morning, and we didn't start rehearsing until about one o'clock in the afternoon. So it's almost lunchtime for me because I, I normally try to eat every four hours, try to keep on a schedule. So anyways, um, maybe I possibly could have just got a really bad cold, but I've, I've, been, I've been tired. I've just been kind of dragging and lagging and not very energetic. I'm, I'm trying to look at your photos and posters on your back wall there. Clockwork orange. And then that's, basically, that's my say, dad. Say all, the black, all the black and white photos of my dad um, in the army when he's in the army. That's his old football team. I'm in my dad's study is where I'm currently at. So, yeah, Clockwork Orange is one of his favorite movies. Um, okay. And this, this is his study, but I've kind of commandeered the record shelf here. I was going to ask, Keith, are you um, 100% up for doing this today? Because I'm happy to reschedule this if you want to, um, you know, link up at a time when you're a little bit more energized. If you if you want to do it now, I obviously am more than happy to do it now. But well, we're, you... we're, we're, we're in it. All right. We're convincing. You know, Perfect. that's that's what we need to do. Well, cheers to you, my friend. Are you going to join me on the visual or are you, are you going to just go um, audio? Let me, let me, uh, let me, st you, you could have, at, at any time you could have said, where are you? I wanted to let you finish what you were saying first. I didn't want to interrupt. There we go. Hell yeah. Okay. Cheers, my friend. All right. See okay. um, so tell me, is Joey C drumming with the Circle Jerks at the moment? Um, I can't tell you that. We're trying to keep it a, uh, there, there are a few p people out there that think they're that like Lucky Lair is going to be playing drums with us. Um, now I don't know where you heard that rumor, but we're just we're just going to leave it at rumor at this time. I hear you. Well, um, it's a pleasure to be talking to you, and I've just finished recently reading this amazing book of yours, which I know came out a few years ago now, but I can't recommend it to people enough and. I actually just got off the phone before we get into our thing moments ago before I um, you know, sat down to speak with you here. I just got off the phone with Shawnee Salt um, from White Zombie. And she was telling me that very early on in White Zombie's career, they were supporting Circle Jerks. She couldn't remember the exact location, but she said that Keith Morris, you, was one of the early champions and supporters and she just couldn't say enough nice things about you she said that you bought a t-shirt from them at their merch stand they were just setting up so they didn't have change you said don't worry about change they said they ate very well that night but um yeah when i said i was talking to you she said to please send her her love and regards so 
consider them sent. Well, she's great. Yeah, I, I love her. Um, that particular story, I, I know the night. It, it was at um, St. Andrew's Hall in Detroit. And on that particular tour, our, our band that was on tour with us was the Necros. And right. as, as we were uh, touring along, every night we would have a new opening band, like whoever the promoter decided was good for the bill. And so they were the opening band in Detroit. And I actually went to a um, OzFest uh, out in San Bernardino. And the bill was Ozzy Osbourne, of course. <laughs> Couldn't be the OzFest without Oz. <laughs> well, I'm um, sure that has happened in the past. I'm sure he's probably missed a few shows over the years. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. That, that's a good point. Um, System of a Down, who were ridiculous. Early and days for them as well, right? That would have been just as they were simmering. They were, they were, they were getting ready to peak. Um, and Rob Zombie, it wasn't White Zombie, it was just Rob Zombie. And... <clears throat> He actually came up to me and thanked me for purchasing the T-shirt because the money that I gave them for the T-shirt, I didn't know what their guarantee was. You know, when you're when you're traveling and you're touring, it's just like you're in survival mode and it's like, you know, yeah. hopefully we get paid tonight. But, you know, the, the place is sold out. So obviously there's money. So you just assume that the opening bands getting a couple of hundred dollars, you know, you would, you would think. And you're you know, not going around asking everyone, are you, how much are you getting paid? Well, I, I, you getting paid? I, I can't like knock on every dressing room door. <laughs> hey, how are they treating you? Did you get everything on your rider? Uh, what was your guarantee? Um, how many t-shirts did you sell? Did you sell any seven inch? Cause they, uh, I think I also bought their seven inch. They had a seven inch. So I think I bought the seven inch. I know I bought a t-shirt and Rob Zombie told me that the money that I gave them at the merch booth was the money that got them to their next gig. Wow. So I was like, wow. Okay. Like, like he just, he came walking up to me and said, Keith, I want to thank you for this, you know, situation that you provided us this money in, in Detroit. I, I thought as an opening band, you would at least get, some food and a case of beer, a case of water, and at $150-$200, because that's normally what a, an opening band gets, unless they're, you know, you're on some package tour where the opening band actually has a bit of a following, which requires them getting some kind of payout from the promoter. But um, Sean's really cool. I, I really dig Sean. Uh, I, I think there, there might have been a point in time where was, was she being considered to be one of the members of the Cramps? She played with them. She actually was in the band for a short time. Yeah, she did a whole tour with them because she had, after White Zombie broke up, she had a band called Famous Monsters that were kind of like a Crampsy 
you know, surfy garage rock and roll type band. And they supported the Cramps on tour. And then I think when the Cramps had a lineup shift, they needed a new bassist. Sean stepped in for a tour. Yeah. Okay. So I wasn't that far off. <laughs> bang okay. on the money. And what struck me about both, because Sean's got a book as well called I'm in the band, I'm in the band. Um, and what struck me about recently finishing both of your books is back in those those days from the sort of early 80s, right up until I guess the late 80s, perhaps even until the early 90s, the scene was a lot smaller, wasn't it? The community was a lot more close knit. There was There was a lot fewer bands. And it seemed like everybody kind of knew everybody and you'd crash at each other's houses at other sides of the country on tour. And is that your recollection of the the early days of like, quote unquote, alternative music in the States? Was it was this well close knit community? We were. Um, when early on, when we were doing our thing. We we were just considered part of uh the punk rock scene. Mm -hmm. Now the alternative scene would have been bands like REM, uh, Dream Syndicate. Um, they were more, uh, I, I guess they were college rock. Yeah. Where would university you, where would about, rock? Like, the replacements? Would they be on that side as well? Well, the, the replacements, if you listen to their first record, they're, they're kind of a punk rock band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um, Westerberg started writing more. Um, it, it wasn't adult contemporary, but I'm surrounded by. I have a. I I have a lot of friends that are music critics that used to write for all of the magazines like Rolling Stone and Cashbox and Billboard and Cream and. I mean, you, you name them, they've written the LA Times, the New York Times, um, and they all, they're, they're all like one of the first bands that falls off their lips is the replacements. So we um, have this thing. Um, I consider most of the bands that these music critics love to be average at best not not average i mean they're they're great players they're you know they have great songs but it's just i'm not a fan of the band i'm um i i can't say that i'm a a, a real fan of bob dylan i mean i love some of his early stuff um but they they would also mention the replacements they would also mention Van Morrison. Um, Here's just, a band that I bet they wouldn't mention then, and I'd love to know where you think these guys would sit, the Minutemen, because obviously they came out of the exact same scene and time as Black Flag and, and all of those early punk bands, but then were they sort of on the college rock side later on as well? There's a few that sort of almost bridge the gap for me. This is why I mentioned the replacements. I guess the Minutemen being another... Um, there was a few that seemed to me to kind of be one foot in punk and another in that sort of college radio, college rock scene that you're talking about as well. Okay, well, the Minutemen, um, they're they're also big amongst the the music critics. The right. same thing applies to Husker Du. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. To, if you listen to Husker Du, they're a pop band. 
you know? Yeah. And it's buried it, in it's, distortion. Yeah. And the, the songs were blazingly fast. So, um, because they played fast, they were considered to be a punk rock band. But if you listen to their lyrics, they're not singing songs about like rioting. They're not singing songs about blowing stuff up or setting stuff on fire. They're not, they're not singing. The lyrics aren't, the, the lyrics aren't angry lyrics. A lot of them are like love songs, like the Buzzcocks. The Buzzcocks would be a perfect example. Yeah. You know, all of these punks think that the Buzzcocks are a punk band. But if you listen to the, the vocals and the lyrics, they're a pop band. Here's what's interesting, you know, though, Keith. The, that they, were, they, they could have been like the modern Beatles. Yeah, or the Kinks, um, definitely. But the thing with the Buzzcocks is, is they were actually in the history of UK music, the first band to self-release a record. When the Clash and the Pistols were on the major labels, Buzzcocks set up their own label uh, called New Hormones and financed 16,000 copies off their own you know, f money of, of that and actually became in the history of UK music the first independent successful band. So you could kind of say that although their music wasn't, punk their their diy approach to making and releasing music was was definitely that which i find really interesting because yeah I, I mean i personally love the buzzcocks i think they're a an amazing band do you dig them um wasn't the new hormones label responsible for the the very first single that they put out yeah which spiral Time's up, boredom. Boredom. With um breakdown. Yeah. With Howard Devoto. Yep, yep, yep. You got it. Free magazine, yes. Early DIY shit. Yeah. Um a, a lot of the American punk rock bands did the same thing. I mean, that was what SST was. Uh yeah. that was what Frontier Records was. There's, there's a whole list of these indie labels that are totally great, and we have to thank them for stepping up and uh, doing the work that was necessary to get some of these bands out there, you know, in our eyes and in our ears. I didn't realize until reading your book that early on, Black Flag were like almost totally excluded from the Hollywood punk scene because of that whole where you're from, how you look stupid, a kind of punk elitist attitude that, you know, obviously kind of still exists in many ways today. But I didn't realize that that was the case. So you weren't initially embraced at all by that scene, right? It was only when the, the Nervous Breakdown EP hit that they were like, oh, shit, actually, these guys are the real deal and they're amazing. Um, we, we weren't accepted into their ranks, into the, the Hollywood clique until the the nervous breakdown ep came out and i remember one night we were at a party in hollywood and normally there's somebody that's playing singles or putting an album on and going and getting something to drink and socializing and all of a sudden there was nobody at the turntable so i went over and put on the uh first side of the nervous breakdown ep 
and all of the people that were there. Um, I remember Fast Freddie Patterson was there. Um, I, I want to say Jeffrey Lee Pierce from the Gun Club was there. <clears throat> um, Kick Boy Face from Slash Magazine. What, what happened was there, there were about five people from Slash Magazine, which was, that was the, the fanzine at the time. This all was the key like, movers and the shakers. Yeah, but they're all really cool people and they don't talk any shit. You know, it's like what they say you pay attention to because they're not going to lead you astray. You know, it was like, um, it, it, I guess it would have been considered our Bible for that genre of music. But they also, you know, they were they were talking about the cramps. They were talking about Bob Marley. They were talking about, um, I remember reading a, a Philip K. Dick interview. Philip K. Dick is the guy who's responsible for Blade Runner um, and several other Got amazing book right books. Right behind me there, yeah. Do Androids Dream of, Dream of Electronic Sheep, an amazing book. Yeah. Yes. Um, so anyways, these people are there. And I, I'm playing Nervous Breakdown. And I'm looking, I'm trying to look up and see the reaction on people's faces. And everybody was like, they were looking at each other, shaking their heads, going, who is this? What is this? And um, <clears throat> I, I want to say it was Greg Ginn. Chuck Dukowski, myself, and maybe even Robo was with us. And they're looking at us and I'm saying, this is our EP. And they were just like flabbergasted. We, we were immediately uh, welcomed with open arms into the Hollywood punk rock scene. And um, I wanna say <clears throat> it, it wanted to be elitist, but there were like working class people amongst the, the Hollywood punk rock scene and um, blue collar people. So it wasn't just like um, stuffy college intellectual people. Well, I studied, uh, I, 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 I've got a, Bachelor of Arts degree in um, in the literary world, and you know, so it wasn't just like artists and, and fashion designers. I mean, there were those people, and you would look at them and, and say, "Well, that's a bit uppity," but at the same time, a lot of them were in really cool bands, and <clears throat> the ones that weren't in bands were like writing for Slash, writing for Flipside, um, possibly moving into the ranks of some of the record labels here in, in Los Angeles and Hollywood. But they were pretty blown away. It was like, okay, uh, once, we, once we played the EP, for this room of people, we started to get shows like uh, we played with X in the middle class and the gears at the Hong Kong Cafe in Chinatown. 
we would eventually uh, we played a played a show with I want to say X at a place called Club Eighty Eight, where at the time we actually had to lie to the guy that booked the club. We t- told him that we were the vegetable farmers from Bakersfield. <laughs> what is that? Because they didn't want any punk rockers in there playing we were, or attending. Uh, we, we had a, uh, a little bit of a reputation because we came from an area where we're, we're, we're not surrounded by the people in Hollywood. We're surrounded by having grown up at the beach. We're surrounded by athletes. I don't mean jocks who are the redneck. You fucking Devo. You're a fucking Devo. You're a fag. You know that that can we, we got a lot of that. But um, you're talking about surfers and kind of the Dogtown kind of style. Yes, yes, and they they have a built-in um, energy and aggressiveness, like. There's the hill. We're going skating right now. Let's not look around. Just do it. The same thing applied to all of the surfers. It's the same thing if you're skiing. You're not going to stand at the top of the hill and go, well, should I do this? Uh, should I go that way? What should I do? You just you do it and you follow whoever's in front of you. Well, you were I mean, saying in the book. I'm not close. The history of slam dancing and stage diving and all of that physical activity before it evolved into, you know, all out moshing and stuff. You were saying it was actually Tony Alva and his crew and those guys. And and there's actually like quite a fine art to doing that. Uh, And, you know, it's obviously a very physical thing, but it wasn't just about getting in there and beating people up. It was actually about, as you say, like expelling that energy in a positive way of expressing yourself, but in a quite intense physical way. Well, What's happening with stage diving, which you're basically diving off the side of a swimming pool into a pool filled with people, a floor filled with people who uh, nine times out of 10 will catch you. And the the pit, if if you notice that the movement in the pit is basically a guy on a skateboard. Now, what would eventually happen as the crowd started getting larger, that would mean there would be other people coming in from other areas who might not have the same mentality as the guys who were doing it in the very beginning. In the very beginning, you had like Tony Alva's skate team. So they're all friends. They're all bros. They're not going to beat each other up. They're, they're not looking to hurt anybody. They're just looking to like get loose and have a great time and let off some steam. Once it got large, the venues started to become the the, the venues went from 100 people to um, 500 people, 800 people, 1,000 people, 1,200 people, 2,000 people. More people were coming in from outside areas. And they didn't know how to behave if they if they decided to get in the pit. It looks violent. So it's like, I'm a big guy. I'm going to get in there. I'm going to be violent. You know, I'll show them who's tougher than who, you know, that kind of thing. You have that kind of mentality. And that's when it starts to get ugly. 
and we've we've seen a lot of ugly stuff. I mean, we watched a guy leap off of a balcony and break his leg in 16 places. We've um, watched. Oh, where was I when they the, the kid broke his neck? It was a it was a, a it was a pit at the Warp Tour, and Rancid were playing. And <clears throat> I've seen a lot of that, and I I can I can sometimes while we're playing, take a look around just to be aware of the environment, like who's doing what to who. You know, if some guy all of a sudden is uh, pushing a girl around or um, some guy's in the pit and he's throwing elbows and throwing fists, it's like, no, that's not happening. That's not why you're here. And if you if you if you manage to get your ass kicked, you manage to get dragged out by the bouncers and you're out that door, you're you're on your own. You know, normally we try to um prevent people from getting kicked out but if they're obnoxious and they're doing it over and over and over and we see this happening it's like toss that motherfucker we we had a um <clears throat> situation at one of the clubs in buffalo new york it was a, a club called the mohawk not to be confused with the mohawk in austin texas the mohawk in Buffalo has signs stating no stage diving. And the guy got up and he stage dived. And all of the people in the crowd were like, you can't do that. This is like one of our only clubs. Where are we going to go if it gets closed down? Well, he gets up and he does it a couple more times. And I think maybe the third or fourth time, he actually breaks his neck. and as they are removing him from the venue on the stretcher he's like he's got the, already got a some kind of a uh, back brace neck chin thing keeping him straight and <clears throat> He's, his friends are following him. You know, they, they want to know what's going on and how he's doing. And one of, I guess one of the, one of the guys asked him, so um, you, you're, you're not going to sue this place, are you? Because it, it's not their fault. You, you were told not to do what you did, yet you did what you did in it. You ended up breaking your neck. And he promised them that he was not going to sue them. Of course, later on, he sued them. And uh, it was just kind of like a mom and pop bar that, you know, when they weren't doing shows, they re relied upon just the local alcoholics to come in and have a few beers to keep their business afloat. Yep. And he sued them. And the club's no longer there. There, I I I read. Um, I think this was on Facebook that uh, all of his friends were furious. They they were getting they were getting like threatening phone calls and emails and 
you know, just because this one guy did something that he wasn't supposed to do. And you would have thought for a room that was that size, there would have been more people pushed up against the stage. So it would have been almost impossible for him to, to leap over these people and, and somehow hit the floor. Anyways, that's just, that's one of the violent, uh, unnecessary scenarios that uh, happens in uh, slam dancing. Now, in certain parts of uh, the world, they'll call it a mosh pit. Yeah. Whatever. I mean, we were doing that out here first. So, you know, um, but like I said, in the very beginning, it was athletes who were doing it. It wasn't just like dumb jocks. All of a sudden, uh, when the crowd started to get larger, we all of a sudden started to have football players and uh, baseball players and guys that wanted to play hockey who, you know, are, are the guys that like to throw a shoulder and kick somebody between the legs with their knee or what have you. And that's when it started to get violent. In the very beginning, it wasn't because everybody knew what it was. Everybody knew who was doing it. We were all friends. It's like everybody get involved and don't worry. You're you're not you're not going to get punched. You're not going to get kicked. I mean, you might get kicked every, every now and then. I mean, there's legs and feet and hands, and you know somebody might get slapped or maybe a maybe a an occasional fist, you know, but not on a regular basis. Not until the 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 jocks started to show up. Do you think the decline movie, um, obviously the decline of the Western civilization for anybody not familiar, do you think that was a positive influence on the punk scene or a negative or a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B? Because it obviously exposed, you know, what was happening in California outside of there across the nation. So then it allowed the bands to go and play and, and tour and stuff. But I guess also what it did do was, show people who didn't understand the scene this is what it is come down and get involved and, and beat other people up as you say that's kind of what it turned into what do you think that movie did for punk at that time well what it did was it was it was a, a a great example of what was happening here in southern california and <clears throat> some of the bands jumped on the opportunity because what it was was it was an advertisement for what was happening here. It, it, it was a documentary, but at the same time, you could see like uh, the crowd at the show that was filmed, that was Fear, the Alice Bag Band, um, Circle Jerks. That particular crowd was a lot of like beach punks, what, what they were calling them beach punks. And they were, um, they were all friends. It, it looks like there's a lot of fighting. It looks like somebody's going to get their ass kicked. But they're all friends. They all know each other. They all know it's going down. Let's let's go drink a couple of quarts of beer and um, pop some pills and have a good time. And a, a lot of people misconstrued that, thinking, well, these crowds are really violent, and these crowds, you know, I'm going to go and see this just. As just out of curiosity, or 
uh, some people would see it and go, well, I don't want to be a part of that. And, and a lot of these venues have seated areas. You can go and you can sit and you can watch from the balcony or you could stand at the back by the bar and not be affected by a couple of hundred guys jumping around looking like they're going to kill each other. What it did was um, you had X, you had um, fear, and the circle jerks. I can't remember who all else was in it, but we all took advantage of the opportunity to have Penelope Spheris show the rest of the world that not only is there a scene happening here in Southern California, but here's the bands that are part of it. So we we all, we, we couldn't wait to jump in the van and go and see what was on the other side of the California border. Yeah, this is all obviously pre-internet as well, what people have to bear in mind. And it was like a free nationwide promo for you guys, wasn't it? Well, couldn't buy that kind of advertising. Yeah. And, and if there was some way of buying that kind of advertising, um, mom and dad didn't have that kind of money. <laughs> My trust fund... My trust fund just wasn't large enough to, you know, pay for anything more than four tires on the van. <laughs> what about Repo Man, Keith? Was Repo Man a good thing for the Circle Jerks? Or I know you enjoyed the experience, but what was the the reaction to you guys? I watched that movie again the other day, and what a, what a great kitsch, cult, fun film it is. But how was the response to you guys being in that from the punk community? Um, we actually got a kick out of doing that. The whole thing was really messed up for us because we were asked <clears throat> to be there at 10 in the morning to get, get our, get fitted for our tuxedos for the bar scene. Mm -hmm. And they, um, they, they, they custom fitted our tuxedos, but they did it in a way where it's like, it, it's we're in tuxedos at about 1130 in the morning and we're up on Sunset Boulevard. And this is like right in the, the, the hottest time of summer. So we get fitted with our tuxedos and we go to the, the wardrobe person. Can, can we take these tuxedos off and hang them up and put them on the rack here? And she said, no, you have to wear those tuxedos until um, you're given permission to take them off. And we were told to be there at 10 in the morning to get fitted for these tuxedos. We didn't start filming our scene in the movie until about 2, 2.30 in the morning. So we were in these tuxedos. We were all hungover. Um, <laughs> They wouldn't let us drink. They did not want us drinking because they, they knew that we were just a bunch of alcoholic. Your reputation preceded you. Yes. <laughs> so it's kind of brutal. Um, it, ultimately, the, the scene's great in the movie, in my opinion. What's the we great line a, that you 
as as well. Ah, oh, man, I can't believe I used to like these guys. Genius. That's, yeah, <laughs> that's a, that's another one of the the great lines, and and there's a ton of great lines in that movie. Alex Cox did an amazing job. Life it, of a really, repo man is always intense, Keith. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go eat sushi and not pay. <laughs> Harry Dean Stanton, did you ever party with him back in the Hellraising days? He seems like a guy that used to be about on the scene and, and kicking it. And did you ever spend any time touring the bars with him? With, with Alex? With Harry Dean Stanton. Oh, no, no, no. I did golf with him once. No, um, one of my friends played drums with him. Harry was an acoustic player and he, he had songs and my friend played drums with him. And my friend, all he did was complain that <laughs> Harry has absolutely no sense of timing. So it makes it difficult for the other guys in the band that are playing with them. But I golfed with him. And we got out there, it was early in the morning, and the guys that were I was golfing with, um, Billy from, um, uh, what's the name of the band? He was in a band with uh, Nick Lowe and um, Dave Edmonds. Really, really cool band. Um, and I can't remember their name now. But they, they, they had kind of a hit on the radio. Anyways, <clears throat> Billy Bremner, um, Carlo, who is my friend from Narlands, and Harry Dean and myself, they'd been up all night, <laughs> snorting blow and drinking and whatever they could get their hands on. And I, I don't think they even got to sleep before. We started playing golf. I don't. I. I. I don't play golf. But it was like I'm going to go golfing with these guys. Harry Dean Stanton. How could I not go golfing with Harry Dean Stanton? Guy's going to have a million stories. And, and Billy, Billy, great guitar player. And I love Billy. And Carlo is just a super freak. And I'm out there, and it's like normally, I guess guys like this just the the game of golf moves really slow. It's just boring. And <clears throat> I'm like making all of my putts and driving the ball. I, I'm not having to go out into the woods to find my ball. So I'm, I'm actually, and this is the first time that I've ever golfed on a real golf course. And I'm, I'm doing great. I mean, I don't know what my final score was, but at one point, um, I turned around and, and Harry was talking to my friend Carlo. And Harry looked at Carlo and said, is he usually this intense when he's on stage? <laughs> I got a kick out of that. I mean, it was fun. And we, and we were out there. Normally, would he, you're out there for about three, four hours. I think we were out there for about four or five hours. I think a, a few people were complaining that we were really slow. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like a big faux pas in golf, isn't it? That you can't overtake 
the you know the people playing the rounds in front of you but i guess you probably had a big backlog of human traffic of people wanting to take over you guys <laughs> like come on already <laughs> well they weren't throwing anything at us so that's a good thing <laughs> yeah he's a, he's a, just for me a real enigma that guy like it seemed like he partied right up until the end and all the stories you read and hear about him obviously a great great fucking actor as well but yeah amazing sean was just telling me a story about her partying with him um at the viper room back in the the kind of johnny depp heyday um and apparently he was always down there with iggy pop and everybody losing his mind well at the end um one of his quotes and i'll i'll never forget this because he was a smoker he smoked like a chimney. He smoked like a smokestack um, all the way to the end. You know, yeah. normally as you're uh, approaching uh, that time when you should be preparing to go to the next place you're going to go to, you, you, you stop drinking, you stop smoking, you're trying to eat healthy, you're trying to instead of make it last 12 days, you're trying to make it last 24 days. And at the end, his last quotes was, I only eat so I can smoke. <laughs> Which kind of doesn't even really make sense. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, like, I only eat and sleep so i can smoke <laughs> basically he lives to smoke <laughs> or did god rest his soul um keith can we talk about your friend jeffrey jeffrey lee pierce you mentioned him a moment ago and there's the great off song uh which you write in tribute to him and one of the last lines in that it might even be the last line is you're talking about burning christmas trees and i've enjoyed that song for several years and then through reading your book I, I learned that that was a ritual that you and Jeffrey, I mean, I don't just want to talk about this, but I thought this would be a nice way into it. You guys are very close and you'd have, was it New Year's Day? You'd do this every year? And why don't you tell us what the, the yearly ritual with Jeffrey was? Well, it only happened when both of us were in town because he was a member of the gun club. I was a member of the Circle Jerks. The Circle Jerks at that time, we were doing quite a bit of touring where we would get in the van and we would be gone. We, we could be gone three or four months at a time. We were going out there and it wasn't like the entire four months was booked with shows. We were getting out there and we were sometimes playing a show and then talking to the people in the crowd afterwards, like, where can we sleep? Can we sleep in your garage? Can we sleep on your living room floor? Um, if, if it's summertime, can we just roll our sleeping bags out and sleep in your backyard by the pool? You know, just stuff like that. And 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 in the course of some of these conversations, we would take it so far as to, are there any other places we could play? Could we just call somebody and 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 they'd let us play? You know, we ended up playing in somebody's garage. We ended up playing in somebody's living room. We ended up uh, actually um, somebody that worked in a pizza parlor said. Just come and play in the pizza parlor, you know. So we ended up playing a lot of stuff like that. We we end up because of that we would be out 
like I said, for three or four months at a time. He would go on tour with the gun club and they could be gone for a month or two months at a time, or he could be off over in uh, Southeast Asia. He would always go to Southeast Asia because that's the place that he loved. That's where he wanted to eventually end up living. And um, one year, there, there's a club on Sunset Boulevard about a block north of the um, Hollywood Police Station. And one block, one block, sorry. Say what? It's one block from the police station, literally just one block away. Uh, maybe maybe uh, a block and a couple of driveways. Right, right. <laughs> um, but the, we, we had a club, uh, club lingerie, where they would buy these, the, the tallest Christmas trees they could purchase, and they would be flocked. I, I think they would, it, it would be white flocking, so it looked like the trees were covered in snow, yeah. you know, because it's winter time, and we're going to hang some bulbs on it, and and they, they had a corner in the club behind the stage. <clears throat> and these Christmas trees, I think, were like 20, 25, 30 feet tall. And what they would do after the holidays, after New Year's, one of the things that happens with these trees, uh, once they're chopped down, they immediately start drying up. You know, it's like a piece of fruit. If you cut a piece of fruit in half and you set it on your counter in a couple of days, the piece of fruit's going to be completely dry and not, it wouldn't even be edible. So many, it would shrivel up and the Christmas tree dries out, even with the flocking on it, which makes it easier to set on fire. And what they would do is they would take these trees There would be, normally there would be three of them. And we would just, they would set them out on the um, on the side of the club, the back door of the club, which was like an alleyway. And Jeffrey and I would get drunk and, and we'd come down the alleyway. We'd grab one of these trees. It was still on its stand. So it'd still be standing erect like you would want it in your house. And we would take it, we'd, we would uh, carry it out to Sunset Boulevard. But it would have to be at a certain time of night because at, at certain times, Sunset Boulevard is like the freeway being uh, during business hours, bumper to bumper. So we, I think we would do this like about 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning. We set it up in the middle of Sunset Boulevard in Wilcox. Uh, one of us would spot to make sure that there weren't any cops coming in any direction. And then <clears throat> just torch the tree and it would just go up and it would, it would go up. It would, it would, it would erupt in flames really quickly, which meant that it would probably burn out very quickly. But you know, here we are on Sunset Boulevard. We, we would do that whenever we were in town at, at that particular time of the year over the holidays. And that just became a ritual whenever we saw each other. I love it. 
I wonder if you could tell me a bit about him as an artist and a human. Um, I don't know if you know Mark Lanigan, but I recently spoke to Mark. I read his book and he talked with great reverence and admiration about Jeffrey and what, you know, a, a dear friend and a great influence on him he'd been. Um, I gather you two, you and Jeffrey were very close as well. Um, tell me about your friendship and about him, if you don't mind. Well, um, our, um, our friendship was, was based on the fact that he wrote for Slash Magazine. I, I told the story earlier about playing the Black Flag EP in yep. this room full of these writers from Slash Magazine and Flipside Magazine and, you know, just other, other people um, that wrote for other magazines or newspapers or, you know, whatever the L.A. throwaway free press or what have you, people that wrote for them. Jeffrey um, was hev heavily into literature. But we never we never really talked about any of like we never over uh, intellectualized about anything. We we always kept it as just like we were beer buddies, one for all and all for one. Let's drink and just shoot the shit. So it it, it really wasn't about his personality because he could be a real freak. And a lot of the people that played with him in bands, some of them. Uh, have just place him on the highest perch possible. And, and there's uh, a couple of them that just couldn't stand him as a human being. But I, I never went out into any of those situations with him. I, I, I was with him when they played. And I, I never picked that vibe up from any of them because everybody seemed to be, this was very early on. So they were just starting their ascension. They, they hadn't reached any pinnacle yet. So um, we were drinking buddies, which meant we're, we're going to watch movies or we're going to listen to music. And most of the time it was listening to music. Now, I remember um, at one point, somewhere close to the end, his end, um, I was driving him around Hollywood so he could purchase sheet music. And the um, <clears throat> artist that he was listening to at that time, it, it wasn't necessarily about the band, but it was about the guitar player and what the guitar player was playing. And so consequently, we were buying uh, Led Zeppelin sheet music. We were buying. Um, Crosby, Stills, and Nash sheet music because he was a, a, a big fan of, not only was, a, a, was he a fan of Jimmy Page, but he was also a fan of both um, Stephen Stills and Cosby, Crosby from The Birds and, and Crosby, Stills, and Nash. David Crosby, and, yeah. And then, and then Neil Young, who they would add for their second album. So he was also listening to Neil Young. And um, I'm, I'm trying to remember who else, who all else he was listening to. He studied Jimi Hendrix. That's the main reason why you see him with the white Stratocaster 
That was because of him being highly influenced by Jimi Hendrix. Um, but we were also listening to, um, oddly enough, we listened to Black Sabbath. He was a huge fan. This, this, this was part of me becoming friends with Jeffrey. He was a huge fan of um, South Bay punk rock which included Red Cross, who were from Hawthorne, the Alley Cats, who were from Lamita, but he was a huge fan of Black Flag and the Circle Jerks. So um, it, it made it easy for me to infiltrate his world. And in the process, um, I, I learned that uh, he's a very intellectual person, which um, I, I was impressed by because a lot of the people that I surrounded myself with, I mean, you know, we're just guys in rock bands. We're working class white guys in rock bands. And you're you're not going to find a lot of highly intelligent people because uh, you have to understand that um, somebody in a rock band is one of the lowest forms of it's one of the lowest life forms on Earth. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> Harsh but fair. <laughs> um that was that was that was also for me that was what was great about infiltrating the Hollywood punk rock scene and being around guys like um Chris Desjardins and Kick Boy Face, Jeffrey Lee Pierce. Uh a lot of those writers, you could tell that they 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 possess uh, a decent amount of intelligence. So Jeffrey and I, we were just bros. We were buddies. I mean, I, I remember a night where uh, I actually drove his black Mustang because I was his chaperone. And his date that night was Texacala Jones from Texan the Horseheads. Her and him started that band. So Jeffrey was writing songs for her. <clears throat> There's a photo of Jeffrey actually playing um, an SG, which, which turned out to be a red SG, which turned out to be the guitar that Greg Hudson of the Circle Jerks bought from from Jeffrey, and that turned out to be uh, Greg's go-to guitar. I mean, he'd had two or three guitars before that, but this was the guitar that pretty much carried us through about three or four years. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. How's uh, your relationship with Greg now? And, you know, you're pretty open and honest in the book about how over the years... It frustrated you that he would put bad religion before the circle jerks. When he gets kicked out of bad religion, does that, you know, help nurture your friendship and create a partnership back to a, a decent place? I presume well, with these thing, shows that you've got coming up that, you know, things are good in the circle jerks camp these days. Um, we're we're good now. But that still doesn't prevent me from talking shit. Okay, um, <laughs> it's just too easy. Um, here's the deal: uh, we we got to a point where we had our falling out, and that's the reason why I'm in a band called Off. Great fucking band. Things things, things got really stupid and ridiculous. Uh, it, it became a battle of the egos, and I'm not I'm not fond of egos. But my ego said, time to get out of here, time to go. You've been looking for an excuse. And it wasn't like we were constantly busy. The, the thing that happened was Greg was asked to fill in for Brett Gerwitz in Bad Religion, which allowed Brett to become the record label mogul that he is. So Brett was totally happy that Greg is now um, taking his place in bad religion. Because of that, Greg's now in two bands. And one of the bands starts dictating his schedule. And that wasn't the circle jerks. And <clears throat> it was fine at the time. What, what it meant that was some of us had to like figure out what we were going to do to pay our bills. I mean, stuff like that happens. Um, I, I, I was a little bit upset, but the, this last thing that happened with off when he came to me and, and told me that they're not working with the guy that's going to produce our, what was supposed to be our new record that pissed me off. And what that did was that provided me the opportunity to say, you're right, I I'm no longer in the band. See, because the conversation started with him just like right off the bat. We know you're going to quit the band, but we're not working with Dimitri. Dimitri's the guitar player in off, but we're not working with Dimitri. And then he started to go down a list of he's egotistical, he's arrogant, uh, he's bossy, he, he has to have his way. He, 
he's this and he's that. And each time he, he uses one of these adjectives to describe Dimitri, he's also describing one of the members of the circle jerks. And it's just, it's the way life goes. You just roll with it. I said, of course, I'm, 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 I'm not going to be a part of the circle jerks anymore. I've got something new to do. You, you've provided me the opportunity to say, see you guys later. I, I've got other things to do. And it's been great. Uh, I, I, I cannot believe how quickly off got from point A to point B to point C. We're still looking at point D. It's like we're getting ready. We have 25 new songs for, we're going to, I think, use 16 or 17 of them for a soundtrack for a movie that we're going to make. It's like we, the, the, the circle jerks would never have this kind of vision. The circle jerks would be like, well, I've got something else that I got to do. I've, you know, I've got some other people that I got to play with, or I got to go out and tour or whatever it is, whatever the excuse is. So, um, Keith, I say this with all due respect, but the Circle Jerks seem to me, from just reading about the history, to be one of the, the most work-shy bands, uh, not in terms of touring, but in terms of like writing music and creating over the years. It never really seemed like um, creating albums was top of the list for anybody in the band, ever. <laughs> um, you're, uh, you're 100% correct. Um, I'm... Um, my particular motivation with the circle jerks, I was probably the one that would be impeding the majority of any kind of progress when it came to being creative. Because at a certain point, when, when you have uh, a, a couple of band members, when they think of punk rock, they think of like whatever punk rock they hear on the radio, which it that that's like a, a a gemstone that's been polished and and buffed and polished some more and put back into the tumbler and taken out and washed off and polished and buffed and cleaned some more where everything has to fit in its category every this is the way that it's supposed to sound you know all of a sudden everybody all these bands that are being played on the radio all these punk rock bands they all have the same kind of recording quality just warped it's, off in a nutshell. It's called radio friendly. We Black Flag didn't think, oh, we're going to get played on the radio. No, we just we recorded what we knew. We that's what we did. We didn't know any better. But you have all of a sudden there are there like two or three guys who have a certain mentality when it comes to to create a process, and all of a sudden it's a creative process it's you, you you might as well just put it in a box and tape the, the the box up and put it up on the shelf in the back of your closet i whenever we would get together to try to create it, it was always coming out all of it sounding the same all of it resembling th this mentality where now we're creating music so we can get played on the radio. And it's like, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. So being 
surrounded by this mentality was like being taped up in the box on the shelf in the back of the closet. I have been asked a couple of times, so when is there going to be a new Circle Jerks record? See, because we're getting ready to tour. And what the deal was, um, one of my friends suggested, Keith, you don't have a retirement plan now, do you? You're 65 years old. I mean, he, this is, he approached me when I was 64. He said, you, you have, how much money do you have in the bank? And I said, well, I got enough to pay my bills. You know, I'm not running out and buying a new car. I'm not going out, putting money down on a house on a hill. I don't, I can't afford any of that kind of stuff. Um, the idea is to create some kind of 401k plan, which is a retirement plan. So the idea was, let's take seven months and play as, as many shows as we can in those seven months. And I thought, well, that's a great idea because we hadn't hit, we hadn't hit COVID yet. Yeah. This, this was about, this I think was about nine months before COVID when we started talking about this and getting our booking agent to start booking shows and then contacting the booking agent over in Europe to start booking shows. And you were going to be playing at the electric ballroom in Camden with TSOL. And I was thrilled by that prospect and well, I, I believe it'll still that, happen. Oh, um, and the, the opening band was going to be channel three, which they're a really great band. A lot of like OC action going on. Um, we don't know. We hope that that's going to happen. We know that uh, Rebellion Fest is still happening in Blackpool. Um, we know that we're doing punk rock bowling in September, which actually might be too soon. We, we've got to wait and see. We've got a big shindig happening down on the Florida beaches right now, which is called Spring Break where there's probably about 500,000 kids down there just going ape shit and bananas and like consuming and drinking whatever they can get their hands on. I mean, cause that's what kids do. That's what teenagers do. So anyways, getting back to the circle jerks, we have these shows happening and now when this, sorry, when this idea is floated, are you and Greg, like on good terms at this point or have you got to do no. some mending before you right no it, it's like um we we've gotta we we just gotta get together and start talking about things and like let's see what happens as it's rolling out and so far it's been it's been really good i mean i i have my complaints but this time around i'm I'm keeping all of that stuff to a, a minimum. I, I don't, I don't need to, I, I don't need to be a dick and an asshole all the time. I'll just, I'll roll with it. 
and hope for the best. Um, we, we have been rehearsing. The, re the rehearsals are actually, I would say we're probably about 60% of the way there. We, we have, uh, I think we have about three or four other songs that we need to work on. We need to work on some arrangements. Uh, we need to work on tempos. But what we're basically doing right now is we're um, practicing what equates to be about a 59 minute set. And it could be a little bit longer. See, because we're going to be placed in some situations where we're only going to be allowed to play 45 minutes. We're going to be playing some festivals. Yeah. And on these festivals, depending upon where you're placed on the bill, you you might be asked to, you know, you're only allowed to play 45 minutes and then we got to cut the power and, and throw you to the piranhas. <laughs> Go up there and swim with the sharks. So far, it's it's been really cool. Like I said, I, I can complain, but I'm not going to complain because I'm just rolling with it. Plus, because of COVID, there's been a lot of sitting around. I mean, I try to get up and walk for 25 minutes, a fast-paced 25-minute walk, break a sweat, try to do that every day. But I've been sick, so it's like, okay. So it's been two weeks since I've taken a real hardcore 25-minute walk. Um, I have to get my wind back, which is a, an extremely big part of this. Yeah. And uh, I, I guess before we started the Zoom chat, when it was just you and not me up there on the very top of the screen. Hello, Keith. Um, <laughs> I told you that um, I'm a diabetic and I suffered hypoglycemia in the middle of one of our rehearsals and ended up because my glucose level was so low. Um, that might be the reason I'm feeling the way that I'm feeling right now. Like I, I feel like I, I, I do have a cold. I've been coughing. I've been sneezing. My legs hurt. My chest is sore. Um, my throat's a little bit scratchy, but I, I'm good. On that. So I just, I need to get on a roll and get back some of my oomph. Yeah. It's amazing the stuff you've survived from reading about, you know, the, the accident that you had in the car when you blacked out there and out in Norway with the Turbanegro guys. Make sure you're eating and drinking, won't you, Keith? <laughs> but um, the, the thing which really got me excited, and you mentioned off a couple of times there, it's so great that somebody at your stage in life, and you've obviously gone and tried the A&R thing for a while, and you, you know, even worked in restaurants, and your career and, and your you know personal life has taken so many twists and turns. And then to have this off project, which I think is easily amongst the best work you've ever done. Um, and you, know, you say in the book that Brett Gurowitz was like, oh my God, you sound like you're 18 or something on this. I mean, those, is it three albums you've done as off how many records have you done like whatever's available publicly i've consumed and just adore and is it an ep or a collection of four eps and then two full lengths is that what's out there 
that's that's what's out there. There's um, <clears throat> there's a live at the BBC. That was a really fun experience because the engineer, um, when we we showed up like 10 minutes late, the engineer just lost it. Kind of like, well, I'm leaving the room and I don't know if I'm coming back and I don't know if I want to work with you because you were supposed to be here promptly 10 minutes ago. I've heard a story, a similar story from um, Helmet went to the Maidavale Studios and they got detained because of a car accident same story sounds like the same guy <laughs> proper job it's, it's, it's london and there's like one road in and one road out so we show up late we 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 pull our equipment in set it up we're we're ready to go 10 minutes later like no no, no dicking around with any of the knobs we know what we want because we're playing live and this is the way we set up when we play live so why should it be any different being in the studio and the engineer actually um once we start hitting notes and getting all of the different sounds he he's starting to become more interested in doing the recording rather than well i'm just an i'm just the studio engineer here today and you just happen to be the band that's coming in here and i've got two more bands coming in after you and you know i'm just part of this production line of music that happens here and we um you just destroy it yeah we we didn't need to dick there was no dicking around it was like just let's just fucking go and he actually caught on to that and was was happy about that where it was like you know some of these guys come into the studio and they probably want to spend an hour trying to get a guitar sound you know or my kick pedal uh the the, the kick drum doesn't sound right so i'm going to put a pillow in it and then i'm going to put the head back on the front and then it doesn't sound good with the the the, the pillow in it so i'm going to remove the front head take the pillow out maybe what i'll do is maybe i'll uh maybe i'll put a empty bottle in there whatever and i'll put a brick in the kick drum you know or what what have you i mean there are a lot of people that are that way and it's just like we're a we're a fucking rock band you know this is what it is plug it's in and play different. yeah yeah I mean, how much, how much has that project re-energized you creatively and just on a personal level? Because I mean, it sounds as energized and, you know, aggressive and engaged as anything you've ever done. Assumedly it completely replenished the well on every level for you starting the band and you know what you've done since. Do you love it? Oh, I, I love this band. See, we're also in the process of um relearning the 25 songs with a new rhythm section we we hit a um right at the uh, right i want to say maybe a month before covid we we hit a brick wall uh, we hit our bottom with one of our members and i had to fire him and i i, I don't 
I don't like doing things like that because it shouldn't it shouldn't be necessary because we're grown men. You know, we we've been through all of this for the majority of our lives. Why should we go through it again? And um, in the process, we basically just had a um, rhythm section mutiny. And I'm I'm not mad. I'm not pissed off. Not angry, um, because we. Uh, when I say we, Dimitri and I, we kind of felt that it was happening. We we kind of felt that we were being pushed around. Uh, we felt that we were strapped down to. Um, I want to say about seven other band schedules when when you're playing with really great players they're in demand and one of our guys was playing in three bands and one of our other guys was playing in four bands and one of the guys was uh mixing producing and mixing his wife's album and consequently when it was time for off to work, we, we would hear um, excuses like, well, I can only work for three hours today. Um, I, I have to take my kid to school and I have a PTA meeting at three in the afternoon. So I can only work for two hours today. So it's like the end of the circle jugs all over again, but thankfully this time you have Dimitri, so you do have your creative partner in your in your corner to keep um, the thing we, going. We we are are really happening right now because we found a new rhythm section. We really love these guys. They're into it. One guy comes from a complete different other place than playing in a rock band, which makes it really interesting. Like, here's this guy coming from Jazz World. What's he going to do when he's placed in a rock situation? You know, are we going to get something like Billy Cobham? Are we going to get somebody like Tony Williams? Uh, are we going to get somebody like Elvin Jones? Oh, that's my phone. I hope it's not somebody that I need to talk to. Do you want to get it quick? It's not. No, you're all good. Um, <laughs> I get a lot of robot calls. Yeah, PPI. We get all that over in the UK. So um, there's going to be more off stuff then. That's exciting. What about Flag? We're going to have a, going to have a new album which I explained earlier, we, we wrote 25 songs, but we're not using all 25 songs on the album because the album, um, the album is a soundtrack to the movie that we're going to be filming um, somewhere during the Circle Jerk seven-month um, weekend scenario because a lot of the shows that the circle jerks are going to be playing we're going to be like playing three or four shows on a weekend yeah we're not, we're, we're not getting in the van and driving to every town to get to san francisco and then every town to get to portland and then 
every town to get to Seattle. It's not going to happen like that. What's the document? Is it a documentary or like an actual movie? Can you say anything it's about a, it? An actual movie, science fiction, conspiracy theories. I, I'm hoping that there's going to be a lot of death and violence, and the the, the one scene where the um, drummer jabs the evil guy in the face in his eye sockets and his eyes pop out and there's like all this yellow stuff squirting out of his face because he's a he's not a martian or a venusian but he's an evil alien like a lizard person sounds like you're you're from you're familiar with lizard people because your royal family are a bunch of fucking lizards (laughs) they're not my royal family that's for sure (laughs) can we as we approach the end of the chat keith this has been absolutely amazing man i don't want to keep you for too long but there's a couple more things i'd love to touch on before i let you go if you have the time have you got a little bit of time i'm i'm not going anywhere see we're still in uh like a quarantine situation where same here if, if if you don't need to buy groceries you don't need to walk over to the corner and buy a cheeseburger. You stay at home. So you're not mingling with all of these people who might have it or might not have the, the plague. Okay. We're going to call it the plague, the new plague. See, because the problem with the new plague is you can have it and not experience any of the symptoms, not be sick, but you would still be able to spread it. That's the problem with what we're dealing with. And then all of the idiots that don't want to wear a mask and, you know, want to go out and hang out with all of their friends, because that's what's happening when I explained what was going on down in Florida for spring break. Yeah, Florida's just seem to have not shut down at all, does it? Florida's just like, yeah, fuck it. (laughs) Good luck to Florida. Um, No, instead of good luck to Florida, it's like, Fuck you, Florida, and fuck your orange juice. <laughs> What's the deal with Flag? Um, I didn't realize time's flown by, but I saw you guys. I saw the two shows you did at the Underworld in 2016. I didn't know it was that long ago, but I just double-checked earlier. Um, obviously, Des, Chuck, Billy, Steve, and yourself. Um, will that be something you do more of? And is that like, is Flag a good payday for you guys, or is it more just for the love and the fun, that one? Well, we're, um, we're all friends and it's like, we, we don't know how to say bad things about each other. And I've known Billy since he was eight years old. And Chuck is the reason why I quit black flag. (laughs) But you're okay now. (laughs) I I love all of these guys because they're like brothers and and we, we start playing this music it's just something happens. You know, it's just so, something that's unexplainable. It's just some kind of drug that you, you can't go out and purchase this drug anywhere. It, it's, it's a whole different thing. And we, we have an offer to play a big show with a really, really, really big band. And we're keeping our fingers crossed happens because the, this would be the kind of show it's in a room that holds 6,000 people. They could do three nights. They could do 10 nights without even advertising, 
you know, the day of the show, they would they could sell it out just by announcing this band's playing at this venue. So I, I don't know anything, <laughs> but I'm just going to say this: misfits, fingers crossed. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. I I don't think the the, the misfits. I don't think they uh, exist as a band anymore. Right. I think. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, 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 yeah. That 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 shows that they did was, I think, just a one-off. I think somebody owed a lot of money, or something was going on legally, or um, I I can't speak for them. I love the Misfits. Oh, so it definitely, it definitely is not the Misfits then. Well, it's the two brothers with Glenn. That's probably as close as you're going to get to. that's three out of four. That's kind of like, wasn't the, um, who is the, who's the drummer from Slayer? Dave Lombardo. Didn't Dave Lombardo play drums with them? Yeah. Dave yeah, Lombardo yeah, yeah. fucking nuts. Yeah. No, I thought that was going to be the band you were talking about, but obviously I'm, I'm off the money with that one. I'm not. Oh, these guys are even bigger than the Misfits. Right on. These guys play uh, right up the street over here at a place called Staples Center that holds, I want to say it's 20,000 people. And they sold out three nights. So, you know, that's kind of self-explanatory. And I, I believe the next big show they're doing is in our new uh, football stadium over in Inglewood that holds, that, that place holds probably, I, I think it seats like somewhere between 70 and 80,000 people. Wow. But there could be more because there's, there's areas where they're just tables and stools, like walking areas where you would get your hot dog or you get your cheeseburger or your taco or your couple of slices of pizza or your box of popcorn or a couple of beers. And then you walk to the, you, you walk to the, um, the, the fenced area and and there's that area probably holds a minimum 10,000 people just one area around the stadium when do you know whether or not these will go ahead um probably in about hopefully two or three weeks oh great that's exciting yeah yeah, it, and it's a it would be a, an anniversary for a company called Golden Voice, who were uh, here in uh, here on the West Coast before anybody else. Gary Tovar would fly in the Exploited to play like six shows, like San Francisco and Riverside and maybe San Diego and a couple of shows in Los Angeles. Or, or GBH, or Discharge, or Susie and the Banshees. Um, he was responsible for bringing um, entertainment from your part of the world to this part of the world. So he does like a 10-year anniversary, and the last one was pretty big. It had X and Social Distortion, Dickies, TSOL, Adolescence. Uh, Descendants. That was the reason why Black Flag played because the Descendants were playing, and two of the guys in in Flag. We when we did the show, we called ourselves Black Flag. 
but we got sued by Greg Ginn. And so we can only call ourselves flag. And that's if we're playing live. So um, who else was on that show? Um, Vandals. Did I say the Dickies? I want to say Agent Orange. Amazing. All the hometown yeah. heroes then. Yeah, yeah. Like big, big punk rock festival. Yeah. Does Greg Ginn have any friends left in the punk community? <laughs> well, I'm sure the guys that play with him in his band because he's given them a paycheck. Um, somebody asked me uh, how we were getting along with Greg, referring to Flag. And I said, well, he sued us in, 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 a, in a lawsuit. In order, to, in, in order to put up a fight, you have to countersue. And we didn't want to get involved in that. That was money that we didn't have. And so um, we pretty much don't get along with him or any of the people that play with him. I mean, that's okay. I mean, it's not the end of our world. I don't need to talk to him. He doesn't need to talk to me. And he was really fucked up to one of the guys to the point where it was um, that the scenario in my head was that he should have been taken out into the parking lot and tied to four separate cars, each limb tied to a different car, and each car drive off drive off in four different directions. Drawn and quartered, hung and quartered, what's the phrase? Leave him there in a puddle of his own humanity or whatever you want to call it. So we 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 have no banter with him, and that's good. We'll leave it that way. What about you and Henry? Are you two friends? Do you get on with him? Um, Henry and I were friends, but the uh, lawsuit came up, and Henry decided that two of us who were like friends of his were no longer friends of his. So I'll just leave it at that. I mean, you know, if he if he, if he wants to be that way. That's more than fine. That that's Henry can do whatever Henry wants to do. What's the connection and history between yourself and the Chili Peppers guys? Because I remember there was a period in time when you'd rarely see Anthony out of the off hat. And I remember at the time thinking that's quite a strange connection because of where they are now. But obviously they come from, you know, the same part of the world as you and the same musical community. And I obviously learned through reading your book that you guys were all pals way back in the day. Have you remained tight with, with particularly Anthony and Flea since the eighties? And are you still good buds with them now? Um, Flea played in the circle jerks. Can you tell us about that show? The one, the one that you tell about in the book, cause that is like the all time greatest bill ever. <laughs> Spinal tap slayer circle jerks and the blasters. In that, that order, yeah. In, in that order. And um, Spinal Tap were great. They're the kind of band, they'd play anywhere. They, they just don't care. Because they're not really a band. They're all actors and they're all friends and they're all musicians. They play their own instruments. That's how great they are. And Slayer played. Slayer was amazing. Very early on for Slayer. You know, Slayer wasn't going to be playing small spaces that held 300 people for very much longer. I think their ascent, they 
they rocketed. They, they stopped playing places that small, like a couple of years after they started, they were already, you know, on bills with other bands and playing bigger venues. And then the circle jerks played and the lineup was Greg Hudson and myself, Flea, Michael Flea Bowles replaying bass, and Chuck Biscuits playing drums. Well, Chuck Biscuits is a monster. Like, you know, there's guys that play circles around him because they're faster, but it's like when Chuck Biscuits hits a drum, when he crashes a cymbal, it's like he's trying to rearrange your face. He's... This isn't like a drum show. This is this is what it is. This is warfare. <laughs> so we we got through playing. Um, the crowd was like scared. The, the the crowd was scared of us. And and Greg and I, I'm I'm five five. We're just little we're little guys, you know. We're not big, burly, muscular. You know, you say the wrong thing, I'm gonna just grab you by the neck and rip you in half or what have you. And we start playing and the, I, apparently the people in the crowd thought we were going to like jump off the stage and start beating people up. It looked like we were that angry. I mean, we just <laughs> tossed ourselves into it and it was fierce. And, and, and in my mind, it was one of the greatest circle jerks events. So we get through playing. People are just like, what is this? No way. And you get through playing. And we're drying off backstage, having some adult beverages. And all of a sudden, I'm kind of cornered by um, Jeffrey Lee Pierce and John Doe from X. And John Doe was like what what the what the fuck was that i've i've never witnessed anything like that and then jeffrey was i think jeffrey was proud because he he all along had been a fan of the circle jerks and it seemed like it was some kind of crowning moment he was just beaming and like keith i've i've how can you explain that? And then, of course, five minutes later, as I'm standing in the corner, Jeffrey and John had gone off to get drinks or what have you. And I have Dave Alvin from the Blasters standing in front of me, and he looks extremely angry. Like, how could you do that? <laughs> how can we, we follow that yeah yeah that's that was what he said how can we follow that knowing full well that the blasters are one of the greatest bands to ever come out of southern california and they play with an intensity that uh is unrivaled for that genre of music they're 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 uh americana roots blues rockabilly but they play like they're a punk rock band they they play with that kind of ferocity it, it was an unbelievable night 
because they played and they were great. Did Flea and we all became drinking buddies. Did Flea play with you more than that one night, or was it just that one time he played to the Circle Jerks? Um, Flea, I believe, played three shows with the Circle Jerks. He played two shows when Chuck was in the band, and he played one show after Chuck quit. He um, Flea played with us when Keith Keith uh, Adolph T. Bohr, Clark played drums with us, and that was really cool too. We played out in a little place out in Alhambra or Whittier. It was like a hundred people there. Just a really really comfortable or uncomfortable um, small club show. So have you had some good times with him and Anthony over the years? Is that a friend? I have. I, I have. They're, they're friends. We, we don't hang out very often. I see Flea occasionally because he has a music conservatory two blocks from where I live. And one of my good friends who lives right across the street from me is like a, uh, he's the groundskeeper. Like if the toilet breaks, he's the one that gets it fixed. If if the fence, the electric fence won't shut, he's the one that calls the guy that works on the fence to come and fix it. And he's the one that greets everybody. And he's kind of in retirement without being retired. But I'll see Flea over there occasionally. And hopefully the circle jerk, what happened? Am I still there? Yeah, yeah, there's a little bit of a delay, but you're still here, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. I had a big black glitch. Um, well, we're almost done, but I, um, I, I try to see Flea at least a couple of times a year, two or three times a year. They're working on their new album. They've, they've recorded all of the music. Now it's up to Anthony to come up with lyrics and uh, vocal structure. They're working with Rick Rubin again, which I'm kind of bummed about. They, they, they should be a band that should just be able to call up whoever they want to call up and say, you want to work with us and let, let us play some of our songs. And you, you would think that they would be able to um, find somebody new and fresh. I'm not dissing Rick Rubin, but it's just Rick Rubin can go produce Def Leppard or yeah, Rick Rubin and the Chili Peppers, we've all heard that now, haven't we? That's been done. That's been done. The final thing I want to ask you about, Keith, is my new favorite band, which I've only listened to for the first time ever today. And I say this with all due respect to Circle Jerks, Black Flag, and Off, but Midget Handjob is the greatest project you have ever been involved with. That record is just so great. I absolutely fucking love it. And I can tell that there's a lot of stories directly from your life, whether you're talking about, you know, your grandparents, neighbors and the lynching that they witnessed or, you know, just a night at a circle jerk show. Like, was it a combination of just real life stuff and then obscure stream of consciousness references that you were going for with that? And did you make it up on the spot? I love to get inside your head with the recording of that album because it's so great and so fun and so unique and different to anything else you've done? Well, 
the story with that recording was I was dying from uh, diabetes. I, I was down to about 87 pounds. And um, I spent most of my days in bed, shivering and freezing, being fully clothed with um, long underwear, two pair of socks, four blankets. And my friend Brett Gerwitz at Epitaph got wind of what was happening. And apparently one of the guys in the band, Chris Bagarazzi, who was also in a band called Clawhammer, a really great band called Clawhammer, uh, talked Brett into giving us uh, a, a small lump of cash to make a recording. And that's what that's that's what happened. There, I think there were like eight of us that were part of the recording. Um, one of my ex-girlfriends, twins, uh, well, they're triplets. One of her triplets played violin on the recording. Um, Petra Hayden. Um, we just we had a good time doing it. I was sick. I, I actually laid in a bed in the um, recording space because the recording space was a house out in Joshua tree. And was it, was it Davey's place? Was it the Rancho? Rancho, Rancho, um, De La Luna. Yeah. Rancho De La Luna. Yes. Yeah. Da Davey catching is a dear friend of mine. I love that man. And I've, I've been out, I've been out there and, and felt the, uh, the unique magic of that place. It's killer. Yeah, really great place. Love that place. And Dave Ketching is you're not gonna meet a you're not gonna meet a nicer, sweeter guy. He's one of the greatest people I've ever met. So the midget hand job thing was just kind of an accident. The the band was thrown together. Uh I think we might have um rehearsed because we actually played some shows before we recorded. And I don't know how I was able to play live shows because I, like I said, I was dying from diabetes. And we just somehow managed to pull it all together. I, I think uh, the, the, the guy that we would blame would be Chris Bagarazzi. I think he was the one that spearheaded all of it. Well, thank God for him, because I, I absolutely love the album. It's like, I don't know, it's like the Minutemen meets Tom Waits meets Velvet Underground. Like, there's so much great, you know, eclectic influences feeding into it. Is it available to buy? Is it like uh, physical copies of that thing out there? You, you have my email address. Yeah, yeah. You email me your address, and I'll, I've got like, 600 copies in my closet up here amazing this, this is the deal this is the deal we actually went out on a tour and when we got back our last show was in downtown hollywood at a place called moguls and one of the main cats from epitaph showed up and once we got through playing, it was 
it was it was it was an odd situation because we don't draw a lot of people. I can imagine. And yeah, we we it's niche. Played this, this last show on this tour, and there's about a hundred people there, which is surprising. Anyways, after we get through playing, the guy from Epitaph comes up to me and he said, um, "We want you to record a second album." And I'm scratching my head. I'm kind of like, why would you want to do that? How many of these, how many of these CDs did you sell? There was no advertising campaign. I actually went to Pennywise, yeah, yeah. the punk rock band Pennywise, and said, look, can, can we put a, uh, uh, our CD cover and uh, mention that, Oh, and by the way, there's this band called Midget Handjob that just released a record at the very bottom of your full page ad. And they said, Keith, we have no problem doing that. They were all they were all cracking up. It's like <laughs> they're also from Hamosa. Like come on. <laughs> and, and 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 the the people at Epitaph were blown away that I, I was able to even swindle that much <laughs> advertising. <laughs> but the um the cat from Andy. Andy Calkin told me, Keith, this is the advertising campaign, and we are going to have an advertising campaign for your next recorded midget hand job recording because, and, and this would be what the advertising campaign would be. And you too could be a part of the worst selling band in the history of Epitaph. We sold. 500 copies of the CD. And I was like, you really want us to do another recording? And they were, they were like, yes, we do. I mean, it never happened. It, it never happened because there really wasn't like we, we had just gone out on tour and, and one night it was just, Everybody that worked in the venue was all the, the people that were there. And we just got through playing and we were packing everything up. And we were getting ready to move everything downstairs into the van, uh, in, into the vehicle that we were using. And two girls come running up the stairs. And I'm on stage. I'm like packing up percussive stuff and putting stuff in the plastic milk crate. And they said, we want to buy a couple of t-shirts. You guys sell t-shirts? And I'm looking at them and I'm wondering, did you even come and see us perform? <laughs> and they said, you know, we were six blocks up the street. We, we were seeing another band, but we heard that you were playing and it was like, just because of your name, we need to just get t-shirts. I'll so just, good. I'll leave it at that. That was, <laughs> That was that was it for pretty much explained midget hand job. Five hundred copies sold. Well, listen, it might be a curio and a, a not a not a bestseller, but for me, it's it's just a fantastic album and you know highly listenable and one I look forward to to delving into more. And I'm definitely going to hit you up for a physical if you don't mind, um, Keith. Thank you so much for your time, my friend. You've been very generous with it, and I've absolutely loved this. And uh, when the world's open and running again and you're over here with the Circle Jerks, I'd love to meet up and, you know, chat and, and maybe do a part two in person someday. Um, it's that been amazing. Happen. Matt, thank you. Thank you for your time. 
I hope you feel better, all right? And uh, good Thank luck you. with the rehearsals. And um, I can't wait to hear some new music from off as well. Excited about that, man. Cheers, Keith. Okay. Thank you. Carousel resting somewhere down inside her colon, not resting so well. Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.